So this week, we're back in Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 8, and I've called this Exposing the Sins of the Heart. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to study your word. Thank you that you have given us, Lord, the desire to know you more, and Lord, as we see ourselves in these pages, in these words, Lord, help us to respond in the same way that you wanted the Israelis to respond. You want us to repent, you want us to change, you want us to grow and not stay the same. We don't want to look in the mirror and say, oh, well that looks not very nice, but then forget what we look like and then do nothing about it. Lord, help us to be people who both hear and do. So we just pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So let's do a memory verse. The memory verse is Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. Are you ready? Are you starting to get it now? Starting to remember it? Yeah? Some people aren't. That's good. All right. Ezekiel 36, 26 to 27. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. Again, it's not by our strength, it's by God's strength. That's a new covenant being foretold in the Old Testament. So, what I'm going to do today is actually you could do a revision of what we've covered so far in Ezekiel to bring it all together. So we're going to study chapter 8, but before we do, let's have a look at the rest of what we've studied. So chapter 1, what was chapter 1 about? Well, God revealed his awesome majesty and glory and power to Ezekiel. And we talked about that and how Ezekiel gained a heavenly perspective, meaning that Ezekiel knows that God is in complete and absolute control, and therefore he doesn't need to fear any person, situation, nation, king, or circumstance. And a verse that sums up chapter 1 is verse 28. This was the appearance of the likeness of the glory of the Lord, so when I saw it, I fell on my face, and I heard a voice of one speaking. So he fell on his face. He saw the presence of God and he fell on his face. If you fear God, you don't need to fear anything or anyone else. Chapters 2 and 3. Ezekiel is commissioned as a prophet and watchman for the nation of Israel and his task was to warn the wicked of their ways to save their lives. That's what God is in the business of doing, right? To save people's lives. And a couple of verses from chapter 2 to illustrate this. Chapter 2, verses 3 to 5. And he said to me, Son of man, I am sending you to the children of Israel, to a rebellious nation that has rebelled against me. They and their fathers have transgressed against me to this very day, for they are impudent and stubborn children. I am sending you to them, and you shall say to them, Thus says the Lord God, As for them, whether they hear or whether they refuse, for they are a rebellious house. Yet they will know that a prophet has been among them. So when everything that Ezekiel has said comes to pass, they will know 
that God has sent a prophet, and he was faithful to warn them. In chapters 4 and 5, we come to some action sermons, and these action sermons that Ezekiel had to act out portray the events surrounding the siege and destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And so these action sermons were a sign to the nation of Israel of the judgment that would come if they did not repent. And what was going to happen? Well, Ezekiel 5, 11-12. My eye will not spare, nor will I have any pity. One third of you shall die of the pestilence and be consumed with famine in your midst. And one third shall fall by the sword all around you. And I will scatter another third to all the winds and will draw out a sword after them. So that's exactly what happened. Those left in Jerusalem. This is the prophecy of the thirds. One third were killed in battle, one third were killed by famine and disease, and the other third were scattered. And in chapter 6, God starts getting specific about the sins that the people need to repent of. And some of the sins that we looked at there, and it was very detailed, when you looked at different passages in the Old Testament which built a big picture, some of the sins that they were guilty of were sexual immorality, child sacrifice or abortion idol worship, drunkenness, desecration of the temple, materialism, and a general defiance towards God. And God also made it clear to them what his purpose was in sending the Babylonian army, and that was to bring them back into relationship with him, that you may know that I am the Lord. And he also revealed to them how sin affects him personally. And a couple of verses from Ezekiel chapter 6 to remind us of the main point there. Chapter 6, verses 9 to 10. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations where they are carried captive. So that's the first thing there. Remembering God. They will remember God when all they've been doing so far is trying to forget him. Because I was crushed by their adulterous heart which has departed from me. And by the eyes which play the harlot after their idols, they will loathe themselves for the evils which they committed in all their abominations. And they shall know that I am the Lord. I have not said in vain that I would bring this calamity upon them. So, very important. I have not done this in vain. I have not said it in vain. There's a purpose to it, and that is to bring them back to me. And so when we see sin in ourselves, we should loathe it. We should hate it. We should want to change. And now in chapter 7. This is a very sobering chapter. God's mercy has limits. God's patience will run out. God only gives us a certain amount of time to repent. And if we continue to allow sin to harden our hearts by persisting in it, then God will discipline us. And you can see Hebrews 3, 7 to 18. God deals with us as sons. He does what is best for us. And he has a plan. And what's his plan? To make us into the image of Christ. Romans 8, 28, 29. And in chapter 7, God reveals himself to Israel and to us as Yahweh Maka, the God who strikes the blow. So as believers, the application here is we can continue to sin and bring upon ourselves God's divine discipline, but also for the unbelievers, he wants people to repent and believe the gospel because if they don't, then 
God is forced to sentence them to eternity in hell. So God is long-suffering toward us and gives us as much time as possible to repent. But there will come a day of judgment when God's patience has run out and there's no more chances to repent and believe. So a few verses from Ezekiel chapter 7, is verses 1 to 3 and verse 9. It says, Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, And you, son of man, thus says the Lord God to the land of Israel, An end, the end, has come upon the four corners of the land. Now the end has come upon you, and I will send my anger against you. I will judge you according to your ways, and I will repay you for all your abominations. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will repay you according to your ways, and your abominations will be in your midst. Then you shall know that I am the Lord who strikes. So, basically, that was the first part of Ezekiel's ministry. So what we're doing now is we're jumping forward in time, and we have the next time, more than a year later, where God again reveals himself to Ezekiel. So let's jump into chapter 8. I've just got an introductory statement by John Corson here. And I've got a key verse as well. So the key verse is verse 12, the first part of it. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols. So think about that. The room of his idols is what goes on the inside of his heart. What's done in secret. So, the context of chapter 8. Several months had passed since the beginning of the ministry. It's actually more like probably 14 to 18 months. Since the beginning of the ministry to which Ezekiel had been called, a ministry to the captives in Babylon, many of the Jews in Babylon were listening to false prophets who were saying their captivity would be short. Ezekiel, on the other hand, said, We're here for a while. The Lord is dealing with us, breaking us before he rebuilds us. There is work to be done in our lives, for we have been a rebellious, hard-hearted, stiff-necked people, wrong in our actions and in our thinking. Ezekiel spoke straightforwardly and bluntly, and some of the men of Israel were beginning to recognize that he indeed was speaking with the authority of the Holy Spirit. And that comes from John Corson's Application commentary. So let's read Ezekiel chapter 8. And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire. And from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the color of amber, he stretched out the form of a hand and took me by a lock of my hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem, to the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, north of the altar gate, was his image of jealousy in the entrance. And we've mentioned this before. They had idols, actually, in the temple compound. 
Verse 6, Furthermore he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, to make me go far away from my sanctuary? Isn't that sad? Their sin is causing God to go far away from his own sanctuary. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. And then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. So it's like going into the temple. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah, the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. And he said to me, Turn again, and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. So he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house, and to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tamuz. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house. And there, at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, were about twenty-five men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord and their faces toward the east. And they were worshipping the sun toward the east. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. Indeed, they put the branch to their nose. Therefore I will also act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. So Again, time of mercy is finished. And it's interesting, a general statement here. God is revealing the sins that you can see, but he's also going to reveal the sins you can't see. So, first of all, let's have a look at verse 1 to 3. And this is Ezekiel going to Jerusalem in a vision. God's showing Ezekiel what's happening there. So verse 1 says, And it came to pass in the sixth year, in the sixth month, on the fifth day of the month, as I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, that the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. So, again, this is a new time marker. Chapters 1-7 to are a series of visions that began in the fifth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. And now, about a year and a half later, we come to chapters 8-11, through 11, which is, again, one long vision given to Ezekiel in the sixth year of King Jehoiachin's captivity. So, like before, it starts with a vision of the glory of the Lord, but this time it's in the temple at Jerusalem. And by the end of the vision, in chapters 10 and 11, 
God's presence, the Shekinah glory, has departed from the temple. Now, why do you think God is going to remove his glory from the temple? Because the temple is going to be destroyed. The people have been sinning, they're pushing God away, and God says, I'm going. The people had rejected God. Remember what James says, draw near to me and I will draw near to you. The opposite is also true. And now in verse 1 it says, I sat in my house with the elders of Judah sitting before me. We read before that Ezekiel had his own house. And now it appears that the people are coming to see him, to hear what God has to say. It's great. And you're thinking, oh wow, you know, Ezekiel is like planting a church here and everything's going well. But no. It's only lip service. And in Ezekiel 33, verses 30 to 33, God rebukes them for their hypocrisy. I'll just read verse 31 to you from Ezekiel 33. So they come to you as people do. They sit before you as my people, and they hear your words, but they do not do them. For with their mouth they show much love, but their hearts pursue their own gain. That's the heart of this people. So they're coming to hear what God is saying through Ezekiel, but they're not obeying, they're not listening, they have their own agenda. And in verse 1 it also says, The hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And so, like we've read in previous passages in chapter 1 and 3, Ezekiel again receives a vision or message from the Lord. Now verses 2 and 3. Then I looked, and there was a likeness, like the appearance of fire, from the appearance of his waist and downward, fire, and from his waist and upward, like the appearance of brightness, like the colour of amber. He stretched out the form of a hand, and took me by a lock of my hair. And the Spirit lifted me up between earth and heaven, and brought me in visions of God to Jerusalem. So, this is the likeness of God, probably Jesus, before his incarnation, becoming a man. And he appears to Ezekiel in something similar to the form of a man. He grabs him by his hair and takes him to Jerusalem. So when did this happen? The time period is when Jeremiah was serving as a prophet in Jerusalem, and it's shortly before the final conquest of Jerusalem by the Babylonians. And now we go into the rest of the chapter, and God is going to reveal to Ezekiel the specific sins of the people. So we have four things. The idol or image of jealousy associated with the king. Verses 3 through 6. The images and senses associated with the city leaders. The hidden sins as well. Ezekiel 8, 7 to 12. The third one, the weeping over tamils associated with the women. In verses 13 to 15. And fourthly, the worship of the sun. And that was associated with the priests. Ezekiel 8, 15 to 18. So God is revealing to Ezekiel what's happening on the outside and what's happening also on the inside. So the first one is the idol or image of jealousy associated with the king. And so I'll read those verses, Ezekiel 8, 3 to 6. To the door of the north gate of the inner court, where the seat of the image of jealousy was, which provokes to jealousy. And behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was there, like the vision that I saw in the plain. Then he said to me, Son of man, lift your eyes now toward the north. So I lifted my eyes toward the north, and there, 
North of the altar gate was his image of jealousy in the entrance. Furthermore, he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, to make me go far away from my sanctuary. So, the inner court. Inner court of what? It's the temple. He's going to the temple. Ezekiel is a priest, remember? So he's going to be very interested in what's going on in the temple and around the temple. I reckon he'd be horrified to see an idol sitting just outside the temple. And it's called the image of jealousy because it provokes to jealousy. It's an insult both to God and to his temple and to his people. That's a quote from Taylor. And remember when I was trying to explain how God felt about this? It'd be like you coming home and finding your spouse in your own bed and committing adultery. And so that's how God feels about this. That's why he's leaving. And so this particular idol has a history with the kings of Judah. And so here's a quote from David Guzik which explains it. Hezekiah removed idolatry from Judah, but his son Manasseh restored it and made it worse than ever even putting an idol into the temple, 2 Kings 21, 1-7. Manasseh's son Amnon continued the state-sponsored idolatry of his father. King Josiah cleansed Judah of idolatry and burned the idol Manasseh had put in the temple, 2 Kings 23, 4-20. But now we see that the idol in the temple was back. Now, why... Do we relate this to the king? Well, because the king used to come in the north gate. His palace, his home was north of the temple, and so he would come in the north gate. And it also says in verse 4, Behold, the glory of the Lord God of Israel was there. So Ezekiel saw this glory when he was in the plain more than a year ago, and in this time the glory of God is present at the temple of God in Jerusalem. And there's a contrast here between the real glory, God's glory, and the fake glory of the revolting idols that the people chose to worship instead of God in the rest of this vision. So that's the kind of setting up this thing here between God's glory and the glory of the idols. And verse 6, Furthermore he said to me, Son of man, do you see what they are doing, the great abominations that the house of Israel commits here, to make me go far away? from my sanctuary. Now, you remember when Moses built the tabernacle? What happened? When it was finished, the cloud came in or came over and the priests could not minister because the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And then when they built the temple, Solomon built the temple, the same thing. God's presence came into the temple and God dwelt in the Holy of Holies above the mercy seat and so the temple represented God dwelling with his people and that's why this is such a big deal that God is saying I'm going you're making me go far away from my sanctuary God had promised to be with his people and that's why people would pray towards the temple because that's where God's physical presence was but by the end of this vision in chapter 11 the glory of the Lord will no longer dwell at the temple. And that's what sin has done. 
a very sad consequence for the people's sin. So sin grieves God and causes separation between God and man. And this separation that sin causes should break our hearts as it breaks God's. Now, people might say, all right, so if I sin, is God going to leave me? So got an application here. Because what we're studying now is under the old covenant, Israel under the old covenant. Of course, God never forsook Israel. He always continued to be faithful to them, to keep his promises to them. This is just a discipline. It's not a putting them aside and forgetting about them. He just had to discipline them. And we discovered before that the purpose is to bring them back to him. But what about us in the New Testament when we're under the New Covenant? Does God leave us when we sin? Some people get confused. They read in Psalm 51.11 when David prayed that God would not remove his spirit from him. And for David, that meant he would be separated from the presence and power of God upon him. Now, for us in the New Testament, under the New Covenant, God's spirit will never leave us. And you can read that in Hebrews 13.5. It's his promise. I will never Can you say it? I will never leave you nor forsake you. In Ephesians 1.14, this is a spirit in us, okay? This is the new covenant promise. The spirit will come in us and live in us. So Ephesians 1.13-14 from the New King James Version. In him you also trusted, after you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So I've highlighted some words there. You were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession to the praise of his glory. So if someone was buying something, they would put hot wax on the thing, stamp it, and it would travel to its destination, and no one could touch it until it got there, because no one had the authority to break that seal. So God has sealed us. No one has more authority than God. We belong to God. The same verses from the NLT. And now you Gentiles have also heard the truth, the good news that God saves you, and when you believed in Christ, he identified you as his own by giving you the Holy Spirit, whom he promised long ago. The Spirit is God's guarantee that he will give us the inheritance he promised and that he has purchased us to be his own people. He did this so we would praise and glorify him. So just as God has promised to always be faithful, to keep his covenant promises with the nation of Israel, and we see that happening before our eyes today, he also promises to... Once we become a part of his family, we will stay as a part of his family. So what happens when we sin then? We remain children of God when we sin, right? But sin breaks our fellowship with God. Our sin breaks our fellowship with God. Under the new covenant, it is possible to still belong to God, to still have his Holy Spirit live inside of us, but to be out of fellowship with God that is, to experience emotional separation from God. And James describes this broken fellowship that the believer can experience in James 4, 4-5. And he says this, You adulterers, remember he's talking to believers, right? 
You adulterers, don't you realize that friendship with the world makes you an enemy of God? I say it again. If you want to be a friend of the world, you make yourself an enemy of God. Do you think the scriptures have no meaning? They say that God is passionate or jealous. That the spirit he has placed within us should be faithful to him. So, we can actually be fighting. Yeah, We can be choosing to do the wrong thing and it's like we're fighting with God. We become, in an emotional sense, his enemy. It's like a husband and wife fighting or arguing. They're still married. But they experience emotional separation until they choose to reconcile. There can be anger there. There can be hurt. And there needs to be reconciliation. That's what confession and repentance is all about. Now, let's move on to the second picture here. The images and senses associated with the city leaders in verses 7 to 12. Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So he brought me to the door of the court, and when I looked, there was a hole in the wall. Then he said to me, Son of man, dig into the wall. And when I dug into the wall, there was a door. And he said to me, Go in and see the wicked abominations which they are doing there. So I went in and saw, and there, every sort of creeping thing, abominable beasts, and all the idols of the house of Israel portrayed all around on the walls. And there stood before them seventy men of the elders of the house of Israel, and in their midst stood Jazaniah the son of Shaphan. Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark? Every man in the room of his idols, for they say, The Lord does not see us, the Lord has forsaken the land. So verse 6, it says, Now turn again, you will see greater abominations. So each time God shows Ezekiel something, it's just getting worse and worse. He shows Ezekiel something that's more abhorrent. So, yes, all sin is offensive to God, but some sins have greater practical consequences. In verse 8 it says, Son of man, dig into the wall. (laughs) And I quote here. To see these greater abominations, Ezekiel had to dig through a wall to see in his vision what was inside the temple itself. In spiritual application, this shows that it may take some effort and energy to truly see the interior. If only an easy or surface observation is allowed, the true state of things may not be seen. End of quote. So I'm going to come back to that at the end. So, if you want to know what's real in the inside, it's going to take a bit of digging. So every thought of, in verse 10, every sort of creeping thing, the abominable beast and all the idols, what was supposed to be inside the temple? Pictures of angels or cherubim worshipping God. What's there instead? What Ezekiel saw inside the temple was unclean and idolatrous things. And this is a dramatic representation of how our thinking can be so easily corrupted. We can so easily stop focusing on and worshipping God and instead focus on and worship or give our affections to other things. And we can worship the things of this world, the filthy idols, you know, money, sexual immorality, and whatever it might be. In verse 11 it also says, There stood before them seventy elders of the house of Israel, 
Each man had a censer in his hand, and a thick cloud of incense went up. So, prayer. They're all praying, right? Incense represents prayer. So outwardly things are good. They look good. But inwardly, things were a different story. They were going through the motions of serving God, and were still offering prayers to God, but the hearts were far from God. And so this is empty religion or tradition, and God hates it. God hates it. And what does it say in the Laodicean church in Revelation? Chapter 3. I wish you were hot or cold, but because you're lukewarm, I want to vomit you out of my mouth. All right. He hates this traditional type of religion where you're just going through the motions of serving God, offering prayers to God, but your heart isn't in it. So God wants us to worship him with our whole hearts, with sincerity. And Jeremiah chapter 3, verses 10 and 11 gives us a bit of insight about the southern kingdom of Judah. Jeremiah 3, 10 to 11. And yet for all this, her treacherous sister Judah has not turned to me with her whole heart, but in pretense, says the Lord. Then the Lord said to me, backsliding Israel, the northern kingdom and more outwardly rebellious kingdom, has shown herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. And from the NLT it says, But despite all this, her faithless sister Judah has never sincerely returned to me. She has only pretended to be sorry. I, the Lord, have spoken. Then the Lord said to me, Even faithless Israel, the northern kingdom, is less guilty than treacherous Judah, the southern kingdom. So do you see what's happening here? They're only coming back to God in pretense. They're pretending to worship God, but they're not worshipping God. The outside motions are all there. They're doing everything that God asked them to do, but their hearts are not in it. And God calls that treacherous. Backsliding. That's basically what he says here in the New King James. It's backsliding. And in verse 12 it says, Have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? And so a quote here from David Guzik, God showed Ezekiel that the vision was about what the leaders of Israel did in the dark and in the room of his idols. It wasn't about what the leaders did in the temple, but in the hidden place of their heart was filled with dark deeds and idolatry. Yet they carried on their service as if all was right. So that's possible for us today, isn't it? We can have a heart that is a long way from God, but we can carry on in our service as if all was right. I can relate to this. I've done this in the past. And it's possible to do it any time. Another quote from Morgan. While the external rites of the temple of Jehovah were being observed, these very observances were made a cloak for the thoughts, desires, activities of the heart. This is the most hopeless stage and stale of pollution. So it's basically as low as you can go. What seems fair and beautiful in the eye of man may be concealing terrible secrets only open to that of God. So... It's possible to be looking like you're really worshipping God, to looking like you're walking well as a believer, but in your heart, things may not be so crash hot. 
Verse 12, it says, The Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. And these are two excuses that the people in Judah used to excuse their sin. Firstly, they said that God didn't see them. And so people might say, well, God doesn't know, God doesn't see, it doesn't matter. But is that true? Of course not. God sees everything. He knows everything. And the second mistake or lie is that they twisted what had happened and said that God had forsaken the land. You know, the Babylonians are coming and things are not going well for them. But the opposite is actually true. The truth is that they had forsaken God. And so we can make the same mistake when we are in sin. We can assume that the mess that we are in is all because God has been unfaithful to us, but actually it's all because we have been unfaithful to him. And so in our twisted thinking, in our sinful nature thinking, we can see things as being, oh, it's God's fault. But actually, you know, if we're sinning and there's consequences, no, it's actually our fault. And now we come to the third sin that God reveals to Ezekiel in verses 13 and 14. And he said to me, turn again and you will see greater abominations that they are doing. And so he brought me to the door of the north gate of the Lord's house. And to my dismay, women were sitting there weeping for Tamils. So to my dismay, women were sitting weeping for Tamils. Why was he dismayed? One, should women have been in the inner court? In the temple court? (laughs) In the holy place reserved for priests? No. And what were they doing? What's this religion or belief that they're doing, this false religion, worshipping or weeping for tamers? Well, it involved committing all kinds of gross sexual immorality. This was happening in the temple compound. And a couple of quotes here. It is likely that the prophet would have viewed the presence of women in the inner court as a profanation or as profane. Another one from Feinberg. With the worship of this God in ancient times were connected the basest immoralities. With the greatest of abandon, women gave themselves up to most shameful practices. So this was happening not on the high places now, it was happening at the temple. The worship of Tamers came from Babylon through the Phoenicians, the Canaanites, and then the Greeks, Tamers. And mentioned nowhere else in the scriptures was the Babylonian Dumuzi, uh, beloved of Ishtar, and is to be identified with the Greek Adonis. Uh, again, that's from Feinberg. So basically, this is linking all these things together. This religious system is all around the world, it's in all the different major world empires. And uh, uh, just something that's interesting. Ishtar, does that sound similar to another word that we use for a holiday? Easter, yeah. And many of the symbols of Easter, like the rabbits and Easter eggs, go back to the mystery Babylon false religion based on Nimrod, Tamils and Semiramis. And I've got a quote from John Corson which explains the background um, briefly. On the north side of the temple, Ezekiel saw women weeping for Tamils. Tamils was a Babylonian god of resurrection. In Genesis 11, we read of a man named Nimrod, 
founder of Babylon, he married a woman named Semiramis. Sometime after Nimrod died, his wife said she miraculously conceived. Sound familiar? The child produced was a man named Tamuz. As a young man, Tamuz went out hunting for wild boar and was killed. After being buried for 40 days, suddenly, miraculously, he was resurrected. That's interesting. Virgin birth, resurrection. Weeping for him, as was the yearly custom, the Jews in Babylon were caught up in this counterfeit religion. In every culture, there seemed to be the propagation of this same scenario. For the Canaanite, it played out through Ashtaroth and Baal. So you've heard those names as you read through the Old Testament? Same religion, Mystery Babylon religion. In Greece, it was Venus and Cupid. In Egypt, it was Osiris and Isis. Satan knew the prophecies of the Old Testament, that truly a virgin would conceive and truly the child conceived would be resurrected from the dead. Thus, these counterfeit religions were his attempt to confuse people. And that's from John Corson's application commentary. A nice, quick way of explaining all that. So, we come to the fourth one, the fourth sin that Ezekiel is being shown by God. Verses 15 and 16. Then he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Turn again, you will see greater abominations than these. So he brought me into the inner court of the Lord's house, and there at the door of the temple of the Lord, between the porch and the altar, the porch is just before you go into the temple, were about twenty-five men with their backs towards the temple of the Lord, and their faces toward the east, and they were worshipping the sun toward the east. (laughs) So, they're between the front door of the temple and the altar. The altar was the first thing you'd hit if you walked out the front door of the temple. There was only one door into the temple. Now in verse 16 it says, about 25 men with their backs toward the temple, and they're worshipping the sun toward the east. So here the priests themselves are not secretly but openly turning their backs to the temple and are openly worshipping the sun when they should have been blessing the people. They had literally turned their backs on God. So a couple of quotes to explain this. The idolatry of the 70 elders, the second one, was hidden in the temple, but these men practiced their idolatry openly. They didn't worship Yahweh, even at his own temple they worshipped the sun, as the other pagan nations did, David Guzik. And Alexander said, The number and location of these men make it likely, though not certain, they were priests. If they were priests, Perhaps the number is 25 because there was a representative of each of the 24 courses of the priests plus the high priest. And you can see First Chronicles 23. Basically there were 24 courses of priests. They'd take their turn each for like two weeks, roughly. And then also the high priest. So the priests were also turning their back on God. They should be standing there and blessing the people, but instead they're worshipping the sun. Now, in the last two verses of chapter 8, God promises to judge them because of all this sin. So we'll just read verses 17 and 18. And he said to me, Have you seen this, O son of man? Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations which they commit here? For they have filled the land with violence. Then they have returned to provoke me to anger. 
Indeed, they put their branch to their nose. Therefore, I also will act in fury. My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. And though they cry in my ears with a loud voice, I will not hear them. In verse 17, a couple of points here. God says, Is it a trivial thing to the house of Judah to commit the abominations? So the people were saying this. This is just a little thing. It doesn't matter much. This sin is a trivial sin. It's a little sin. It's not very important. But you know what? It was important enough for God to judge them. So, there are no trivial sins. All sin will be judged. And verse 17, For they have filled the land with violence. So what happens when a society turns away from God? Well, you have lawlessness, violence, injustice, sexual immorality, child sacrifice or abortion, and the destruction of the family unit. So all this sexual immorality, all these people sleeping around, all this, when they go and worship the idols and then they have the cultic prostitutes there, it's all going to destroy the family. It's not a family-friendly society. And so the moral fabric of their society was breaking down. Now what's happening in our society? Same thing, yeah. Why? Because we're turning away from God. You know, I remember like 70 years ago the statistics were, well, no, I wasn't there. Uh, the statistics showed that, you know, a lot more people went to church than they do today. Creation, probably back in, maybe I think, the 40s or so, creation was taught in schools. Our culture is going downhill very quickly. We're going in the same path as the children of Israel in their rebellion against God. Verse 17 is this interesting phrase, they put their branch to their nose. Well, no one really knows what it means. But basically they just conclude that it's an expression of contempt for God. That's the context. It's not used anywhere else. There's no other context to figure out what it means. And verse 18, My eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. Remember last time? God said, it's the end. The end. Yeah. Basically, there's no time for repentance there's no more mercy, it's too late. You know, the Bible says today is the day of salvation, tomorrow may be too late. Not in those words, but you can read Hebrews 3, 7-19 to get that message. So don't remain in unbelief, refusing to repent, because sin hardens our heart if we do that. And that leads us to needing divine discipline to break us. So again, Hebrews 3, 7-19 describes that. Now, because of the great idolatries, this is a quote from David Guzik, because of the great idolatries and sins of Jerusalem, and the people regarded it all as a trivial thing, God's judgment was assured and could not be turned back. So, we need to be seeing sin as important, as destructive, as something that needs to be dealt with, and not something that's minor, that can be just left alone, and we can put up with it. Another quote from Morgan, because of this utter corruption of the people, Jehovah would proceed in judgment in spite of all the loud crying of the people. So when the judgment starts, what are the people going to do? Oh God, help me, you know, please, I'm sorry. But God says, I can't hear you. Sorry, it's too late. I warned you before. I gave you a chance, but it's too late now. What do you think is going to happen when the rapture happens? How many false converts do you think might be going, ooh, I missed it. I missed the rapture. 
God, I'm sorry. Yeah, I truly believe now. But guess what? They're stuck in the tribulation. They, they can be saved. But they're probably going to be killed for their faith. Much better to believe before the tribulation starts and go up at the rapture. The conclusion and application, exposing the hidden sin of the heart. This is what I want to focus on. This is what we started with at the beginning. Verse 12, Then he said to me, Son of man, have you seen what the elders of the house of Israel do in the dark, every man in the room of his idols? So this is a thought from John Corson's application commentary. Ezekiel was told to dig a hole through the wall of the temple. As he did, a door appeared which he entered. On the inside walls of the temple, Ezekiel saw pictures of beasts, creeping things, and pornographic items. The Lord said to him, This is what is going on in the minds of these men who are outwardly so religious, who offer prayers and worship, who appear so righteous and pious. That's what we said before. On the outside, things looking good. On the inside, not so good. The quote continues, Jesus had much to say about our minds. In his day, there were those who were very proud of their outward behavior. They didn't murder. They didn't commit adultery. They didn't use profanity. And yet Jesus said, that's not the issue. It's what's going on inside of your minds that matters. You pride yourself in not committing adultery, but I say to you that if you look at a woman with lust, in essence, you've already committed adultery. You pride yourself in the fact that you haven't killed. But I say to you, if you have been angry with your brother without cause, you're guilty of murder. You take pride in not using profanity, but you use my name in a way that lacks integrity. So you can say all that in Matthew 5, Sermon on the Mount. And the quote continues, What goes on in the chambers of our imaginations? What if Ezekiel came on the scene today and dug a hole through your skull? What kind of pictures would he see on your walls? Psychologists tell us we have approximately 10,000 distinct thoughts in any given day. What if those thoughts were displayed upon screens for all to see? (laughs) Paul picks up on the same idea when he speaks to us concerning our imaginations. And he says this in 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. For though we walk or live in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, that is human or physical, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds, casting down arguments or imaginations, thoughts, and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. So that's what I want us to focus on this week. Bring every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ. Remember that we are being watched by a huge audience. Is innumerable angels and stuff, and we might be alone in our bedroom, but we are being watched by possibly even the people who've gone on before. We don't know. So, you know, there is no privacy, really. We can be hiding ourselves from each other, but, you know, God sees all. 
And God knows every thought. We can't hide that from God. This is not trivial. What we think, just because no one else is affected by it, initially, at least, is not a trivial thing. God says, these people are saying it's a trivial thing. It's not. It will lead to judgment. Our thoughts need to be controlled. They need to be brought under control. How do we do it? It's not by our own effort. It's by God's tools. It's by God's strength, God's power, God's ways. What does Romans say? Romans 8 verse 13. We overcome sin by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a summary statement. So Father, I thank you for these quite probing passages, Lord. Lord, we can get application from all of these. Some people are like the priests who are openly worshipping other things, not hiding the fact that they don't love God anymore. Other people, like the women, are just worshipping tamils and and just caught up in the feel-good religion. Other people, like the elders, are pretending to worship you, but in their hearts. They're worshipping their idols. So, Lord, help us to be honest and real with ourselves. And, Lord, if there's anything that we need to change, I know that we all are going to struggle with controlling our thoughts because that's the fiery darts of the enemy. So, Father, I just pray that you'll help us to quench those fiery darts, quench those thoughts that shouldn't be there by faith. And faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So I pray that as we read the word, that we will gain the faith and the power to put to death these thoughts, to put to death the deeds of the sinful nature, and to stop these darts from penetrating and causing us to think about the wrong things. So we just pray we will have pure minds which will be focused on you and not focused on sinful things. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.